signed up for the seminar. It was cold and rainy and snowing probably, and here we are. It's the most beautiful day of the year, and you've still come out on a Friday night to dive into some obscure ancient texts, to get insight into some very old Hebrew words. And uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, very meaningful conversation tonight about uh, the earliest chapters of the Bible, found, uh, foundational, fundamental chapters. Uh, and I'm very much looking forward to the evening. You are all weird for being here, but thank you for being weird. Uh, I think it's a, it's a great thing. Uh, it's going to be a good discussion tonight. Uh, if you're new to ECC, and this is the first time you've been here, I should introduce myself. Uh, my name is Dan Wall. I am one of the pastors on staff, the pastor of Adult Ministries. If you're looking for information uh, about the church, just to the left there is a, a wall full of that kind of information that you might find useful uh, about the different ministries, about what we believe here at the church. Uh, and about seminars and why we do these kind of things. Uh, here at ECC, we do take the life of the mind very seriously. Uh, we understand that that is one of the ways in, in which we glorify God by thinking well and using the, the God-given resources, meaning our intellects, uh, to further pursue a knowledge of Him, a knowledge of His Word and His world. And so this is one of many seminars that we've done. We tend to do them about every other uh, or not every other semester, every semester here at the church, on topics ranging from art to the book of Ephesians, uh, you know, social justice issues to, oh, what are some of the other ones? The doctrine of the Trinity. So wide-ranging topics, and tonight, obviously, Genesis 1, 2, 3, and wherever else Dr. Walton decides to, to take us. Um, again, if you're new to the church, probably a, thing, a couple things you want to know, like where the restrooms are. Uh, as you walk in, you probably walked by one set uh, to your left there. There's another set if you go through those back doors and down the hallway. Uh, during the, the mid-evening break, they might get a little full, so there's two sets of bathrooms. Also, uh, to keep you full of energy, we got coffee and refreshments in the back. Uh, to the left, something we don't always do, uh, but we do have DVDs uh, from... Dr. Walton's uh, ministry organization, Origins, today. Uh, the DVDs are available. The suggested donation is $2, but that is a suggested donation. If you don't have that with you, uh, if you can't afford that, that don't let that be a hindrance. Uh, Dr. Walton's graciously said, just take it. Uh, more than happy just to have it in your hands. Uh, so that's there. And just down from that are many of Dr. Walton's books, though certainly not all of Dr. Walton's books. Those were the ones that were on my shelf. Um, I think I stole one from Bob's shelf, too. Uh, so he is well, obviously well-read. He writes extensively about the Old Testament. Um, what we've decided to do is rather than have multiple copies of those books, is to place orders. Uh, we have here at the church free shipping from Amazon. Those are the Amazon prices. And so if you want one of those books, there is a clipboard sign-up. Let us know which ones you want. We'll have those ordered. They'll be here within two days and in your hands within whenever you decide to come pick them up. Uh, so please take advantage of that. If you have free shipping from Amazon, there's probably no reason to take advantage of it, but probably a lot of you don't. So uh, it is a privilege. One of the kind of joys of, of my job here is to, to plan these seminars. Uh, months and months ago, one of the, the elders here in the church came to me and said, Dr. Walton from Wheaton College, is on sabbatical and doing a speaking tour about his, his book and his research, and maybe we could get him to come to ECC. And I knew Dr. Walton's name because 
I've invested in a small library from Dr. Walton, uh, and immediately uh, I began the conversation with Dr. Walton to see what we could work out. I was just excited to have someone, a scholar of his caliber here, someone who is, I think it's safe to say, pushing the envelope a little bit, uh, and a reinterpretation uh, of the early chapters of Genesis, and I'm just excited to have him here. Uh, if you have never read one of Dr. Walton's books, and I'm assuming most of you have read at least one of Dr. Walton's books, uh, The Lost World of Genesis 1, but even if you haven't, you have been influenced by Dr. Walton because your pastors here at the church have been greatly influenced by Dr. Walton. As we've been doing this series on Sunday mornings, uh, preaching through ancient stories with contemporary meaning, his commentary on the book of Genesis is probably the one we go to the most often. Uh, his survey of the Old Testament was one that has helped me greatly understand and piece together uh, how the Old Testament fits as one coherent story. Uh, just great work, and so you're in for a, a treat tonight. Dr. Walton, thank you very much for setting aside time. about uh, tonight and tomorrow morning because this is one of the rare occurrences where they have given me plenty of time. Uh, I've given this, uh, this lecture, or lectures like it, uh, about 40 times in the last 80 days, uh, traveling all around the world and around the country doing it. In most places they say, well, we can give you an hour, or we can give you, you know, an hour and a half, and I just rush like crazy to fit everything in. And Dan so graciously gave me time this evening and tomorrow morning that will allow us to really dig into the material, which it really needs. This is some complex material, and we really need some time to get our minds wrapped around it and to, to talk about it. So I'm really grateful for this uh, opportunity to talk about it at length. Now we're talking about the topic of origins. Obviously a very controversial topic, and yes, I am going to be pushing the envelope, but hopefully in ways that you'll feel like getting on and riding that envelope as it's being pushed. Uh, but I do want to say, even as I say that, that I'm really not here to change your mind. Uh, inevitably, some people do change their minds when they hear what I have to offer, but that's not really my objective. My objective is uh, more that we can start thinking about our attitudes toward people who might accept a different view of the origins question than we do. Uh, I'm much more concerned about the church and the attitudes that we have toward one another in the church than I am about whether everybody thinks the same thing. On controversial topics, we're not all going to think the same thing. Uh, I'm going to be putting information in front of you that has helped me, uh, that I've had the opportunity to study and discover and learn over the three plus decades that I've been doing this. I'm certainly not coming as a scientist. Uh, some of you are scientists, and I'm, I'm very grateful for all that you do. But I am not a scientist, and I'm not here to really address the science uh, or to promote any particular scientific set of conclusions. Uh, some things I have conclusions on, other things I don't. Uh, and basically, I'm pretty patient with all of that. Uh, but I'm a text guy. And so I've come to talk to you about the Old Testament, 
and about reading it carefully, closely, seriously. For many of us who are Christians, the Bible can stand as sort of a, um, a filter by which we figure out what science we might accept and what science we can't accept. We identify certain claims that the Bible has, and those claims become the criteria by which we consider what claims science might be making. And that's not a bad thing to do. But, of course, what, what we have to realize then is how important it is that we know exactly what the Bible's claims are. Sometimes what we think the Bible is claiming, it may not be claiming. Or it may be claiming things that we haven't recognized. So we want to be sure that we know what the Bible claims so that we can use it properly as we set up this, uh, this discussion between Bible and science. And that's what I'm going to be talking about. What claims does the Bible make? Now, some people think there's a war going on out there. Uh, they think that science is making a whole different set of claims than the Bible is making. And therefore, that you have to choose one or the other, because you can't accept both sets of claims. Well, again, if we're going to try to evaluate whether that's the case, we want to see what claims are being made. So that's sort of my introduction of what I'm doing here. We're going to spend a lot of time in text and trying to understand the text. Uh, I'm going to be sipping water more often than I usually do. I'm just getting over a cold, and uh, therefore I need a little more moisture. I usually go hours without needing to sip water, but I don't want to be coughing at you all night, so we'll try to keep that going. So let's get started. We have to start with authority because uh, I'm working from the Bible side of the equation. Again, I'm not working from the science side. Uh, I don't bring scientific conclusions to the biblical text to make demands on the biblical text. Um, I'm starting with the Bible. So we'll talk about the Bible having authority. Now, I'm not going to go through the theology of the Bible's authority, though we certainly could do that and it would be worth our while. But I want to focus our attention on exactly what the premise is behind the authority that we associate with the Bible. It was God's gracious decision to communicate, to reveal himself. Lots of people think that grace is connected with the New Testament, and something like law or judgment or things like that are associated with the Old Testament. And so I'm always happy to tell students or, or audiences of any sort that the Old Testament is full of grace. And the grace that it's full of is the grace of God revealing himself to people. After all, if he didn't reveal himself, we have no idea what he was like. All we can do is guess. And guessing doesn't get us very far, because then it's just kind of our own best ideas. Okay? But God didn't do that. He communicated to us in this act of grace. Now, God could have communicated in a number of different ways. I mean, God could have decided that as each human being was born, he would communicate personally with them into their minds in addressing the things that they would, would want to know or need to know. But he didn't do it that way. No. He did not give us kind of personalized, individual revelation. Instead, he decided to reveal himself through a particular group of individuals, Israelites. And we refer to them as the authors, although... Of course, that's complex because some of them are just speaking. 
and somebody else is writing things down, but let's call them authors, just it's, it's easiest that way. So he spoke through particular authors in a particular language, in a particular culture. Now that seems like it could be a very limiting process to use. Uh, but that's, who can argue with God? It was an act of grace, and we'll take what he gives us. What that means, though, is that whatever purpose and message God had to communicate, that was, that was transmitted to that human author, who would then in turn transmit it to his audience. That makes the human author the important hub of that communicative act. The human author understood the purpose God had, and he communicated it. Therefore, our access to God's purpose is through that human author. So God's purpose is communicated through a human author and carried out by that author. Now again, we might say, but of course the human author is much more limited than God is. Well, of course. So maybe God had more, more meaning, more purpose, more message than what the human author in his limited role knew. Well, certainly that would be a possibility. God's always bigger than, than any process that involves humans. That would be possible. But here's the problem. If God had more that the human author didn't know, where would we get it? There, I mean, we have no place else to go. We can't go back to our own minds and say, well, I think that God also meant this. Sorry? I mean, I like you already, but you don't get that authority. I don't get that authority to be that, that um, channel of God's extra revelation that the inspired, authoritative author didn't know. We don't get to do that. So whatever purpose God had, we only have access to it through that human author. That's really important, because then we are tied to that communicative act between the author and his audience. God has vested his authority in that human author. Now, I, I just heard about two days ago, some, some pastor in one of the places where I've been wrote this blog, was very critical of things I was saying, and one of the things he accused me of was being a humanist. I said, wow. That's, uh, that's, that's something. I mean, I thought I was pretty pretty clear here. He said, since I wanted to connect the um, communication of God to the human author and then focused all on the human author, that made me a humanist. I'm sorry, there's no choices we have here. This is the way God chose to do it, and we have no other access. It's still God's purpose. But it's the human author who is the channel for that. God has vested his authority in human beings. That's what inspiration is all about. 2 Peter 1, 20, 21. Prophets moved by the Holy Spirit. Okay? So, I'm going through this because this tells us what our focus is going to be. What we have to take a look at. Now, all of this means that we recognize something that creates a barrier for us. Even though God's intention was to reveal himself to all people everywhere of all time, in every place, in every language... And the Bible is therefore for all of us. It is not to us. The Bible is not written to us. It is written for us. But it's not in our language. 
It's not focusing on our culture. It is for us, but not to us. We're reading someone else's mail. We are outsiders trying to enter the communication that's between insiders. And that presents a challenge for us. We recognize that the message transcends culture, but the form is very clearly culture-bound. It's in Hebrew. And it's not just a matter of translating the language. I spent about three weeks in uh, Eastern Europe, five different locations there, and every place I was working through interpreters. It was the first time I was doing that, so it was a little bit of a challenge. And um, you know, I got into the rhythm of it okay, but I recognized that sometimes I would say one line, and the interpreter would say six or seven lines. I was like, okay, what's going on with that? But he explained to me that it wasn't just a matter, this is obvious enough, it wasn't just a matter of translating the words I used. He had to put those <coughs> words in a context that would suit the culture of the people that he was trying to bring that communication to. And that's how it is. It's not just a matter of translating the language. There is the translation of culture that's involved. And so the message transcends culture, but the form is culture-bound. Now, does that mean that scripture somehow becomes less accessible to us, even in its written form? Again, some people object sometimes that they say, I'm, I'm uh, removing some of the clear understanding of scripture from people's hands because I tell them that they have to read it differently. They have to penetrate to the culture of the ancient world. That's true, scripture is clear in that audience and author original communication. It was very clear to them. Much of it remains clear to us, but there's a lot of it that needs extra attention. So our task is we have to try to join the audience in that original matrix of communication between the Israeli author and the Israeli audience. That's where the authority is. If we want the authority, we've got to go there. Now, let's talk about how the communication takes place. I've already mentioned outsiders and insiders. Now, let me give a little more definition to that. Um, first of all, I assume that there is integrity in the communication between the author and audience. By integrity, what I mean is the author did know what he was saying. He's not just babbling meaningless words that he's uh, been given by the Holy Spirit and has no clue what he's talking about. That would not be communication. Okay, the author is communicating. He knows what he's talking about. And what that audience understood was what he was talking about. Again, we assume effective communication. If God's involved in it, we assume the communication is effective. And so we have this effective communication taking place between author and audience, um, a meaningful exchange. Now, I want to introduce two categories. Uh, first of all, high context. High context is insider communication. In high context, there's a lot of commonality, a lot of familiarity between the author and the audience. That means that the author can take a lot of shortcuts, can assume a lot, doesn't have to explain things, he knows his audience knows those things, and he can really move along rather quickly with 
uh, sophisticated ideas or common issues in uh, experience. When I'm communicating with, communicating with my graduate students, it's a high context communication. I assume they know the basic ideas, I assume they've got the background knowledge, I assume that words are familiar to them and ideas are something that they're, they've worked at before. And so I don't have to explain all those things, we can work with that premise. It's a high context communication. The opposite of that, of course, is the low context. This is where the speaker and audience have little common ground, so a lot has to be explained. Now, contrast, instead of teaching my grad students, every Sunday, at least I'm not on tour, uh, every Sunday I teach the sixth graders at our church, and I teach them an introduction to doctrine. That is a low context communication. I've got to explain everything. They don't have any background they bring to it, and I've got to explain it all. That's a low context communication. They are outsiders to the um, information that I am presenting. And I have to try to bring them in, in the way that I communicate. So we have high context among insiders and low context, uh, an insider to an outsider. Okay, you understand the two points. Uh, maybe to give you an example, um, when, well, if you're a young person here, when you try to text with your parents, <laughs> or if you're a parent or grandparent here, when you try to text with teenagers, you know, we're talking low context. <laughs> you know, lots of got you know, being missed here. Okay, uh, it's certainly low context when I'm working through an interpreter. We don't even share the same language when I'm working through an interpreter. We certainly don't share the same culture, and there's a lot that has to be explained. Okay, empty idea, high context, low context. Here's the importance of it for this conversation. The communication between the author and his original audience was a high context communication. Again, they shared culture, language, experiences, etc. When we try to read that text, we're coming to that high context communication as a low context audience. Again, we're coming as outsiders into an insider's conversation. Sometimes I'm sure you've had the experience where two people are talking, they obviously know what each other are talking about, and you kind of catch part of the conversation, you have no idea what they're talking about. Okay? So that's the, the kind of thing we're talking about. But we need to recognize our role as we read scripture. We are low context. And we have to acknowledge that and work at trying to remedy that situation. So when we study scripture, when we want to read it deeply and to understand it, we need to be raising our context level so that we can start moving out of that low context condition into a high context condition. We want to be moving from outsiders to insiders. It's not something that happens automatically. The Bible is not high context communication to every culture and every language and every place. It was only high context in the Israelite situation. Okay, so as we start to try to enter that world, as we start to try to think the way they do, be part of that audience, raise our context level, be more insiders, okay? We've talked about it several ways here. I hope you're getting the idea. Uh, one of the ways is that we have to start trying to see the world the way the text, that the people of the text see the world. Blue Earth, there it is. We know exactly what's going on here. You could describe all kinds of things about that picture. 
that it conveys to you. And we would say that this is true. This is a true picture of the world as we understand it. How much of that picture would make sense to an ancient Israelite? None of it at all. If you showed this to an ancient Israelite, or an ancient Egyptian, or an ancient Babylonian, they would have no idea what they were looking at. They would have no, no common ground to make sense of anything that's there. God did not give Israel a blue earth picture. He didn't talk to them in terms of blue earth. He talked to them in terms of a very different picture, the picture that they themselves had. What's the picture that they had? Let's start with Egypt. Here we have a uh, rendition of a tomb painting, a coffin text, um, from ancient Egypt. Uh, this is a modern artist's rendition of the same basic scene. My son's an artist, so I like to get him to help me out and draw some pictures for me, and you'll be seeing them all through the PowerPoint. Uh, when you see artwork, it's, it's his stuff. So uh, that shows the same kind of idea in a more modern uh, conveyance. Well, what we have here, we've got the sky god. She's, she's arched over the cosmos. You can see the stars emblazoned on her body. Uh, all of this, she's holding back the waters above. Everybody in the ancient world believed there was waters above. There's a rather logical conclusion. Sometimes the water comes down, therefore it must be up there. It doesn't come down all the time, therefore something's holding it back. I mean, just basic logic, that's all they had. Okay, they had nothing else by which they could make conclusions. Here's the sun bark, uh, the sun god there sailing across the, the upper waters. We've got the earth god here, laying prone, and the air god separating the two of them. You can see in this picture, my son chose a little more active idea. They see the, the sky god and the earth god, they used to be married, and it didn't work out. And they got separated uh, by Shu here, the air god, and he's got a hold of a party, even though every once in a while they'd like to get back together. Never mind. Okay. So, uh, so we, ah, uh, the soap operas of the ancient world. So, uh, so this is their, their world picture. We call it their cosmic geography. How they think about the world. Now, there's some interesting things that we need to notice here. We would call this mythology. But they wouldn't call it mythology. For them, this is the deepest reality they have. It's the most important truths that they know. And a matter of fact, when they show a picture like this, they're showing what their priorities are as they think about the ancient world. See, even in something like this that we say is that we call it mythological, and we don't believe in any of that. It doesn't matter whether we believe it or not. They believed it. And therefore, it helps us to understand their thinking about the world. This is why ancient texts are important, because they can help us to see how people thought in the ancient world. That's important because if we don't have a sense of that, we're going to end up imposing our ways of thinking just kind of as a default. And that would not be good. We can't assume that they thought about things the same way we did. And if we impose our ideas on their text, we're going to distort it. And the authority will be at risk.
because it won't be communicating what they intended to communicate. So, uh, this is uh, very important to them. This represents their most significant truths. Now, we can make some observations. First of all, we can see that they believed that the gods were more important than a material structure. They've got some material indications here. After all, there's the sky arched above the earth. That's kind of a material positioning idea, but it's really not much to go on. Uh, really, what they're more interested in is who's in charge, who has jurisdiction. Uh, and that's a more important question to them. Think about if you got a new job and you walked into the building your first day, uh, you wouldn't necessarily say, wow, I wonder uh, what architect built this building and uh, what kind of stone they used and tile. I wonder they got this tile and what it's made of. You, know, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't care about the architect or the general contractor. You would want to see the organizational chart. Who do you work for? Who's your boss? Who tells you what to do? Who signs your paychecks? Who does your evaluations? Uh, who, when you see them walking down the hall, you have to get off Facebook? Oh, excuse me. So, you know, we have different, you know, we want to know how it all works. I mean, it's the same thing here. They're much more interested in how it all works than kind of what it's made of. They didn't have any way to show it was made of anyway, and it wasn't important to them. Uh, furthermore, of course, we can see that in the way they thought about the world, it was peopled by the gods. Now, on that point, they're going to be different from the Israelites, uh, because they have a different view of the gods and their role in the world. Okay, so if we took a look at the Israelite picture, we'd be looking at something more like this. Now, everything in this picture was taken from the language of biblical texts. So again, we've got the waters above, the waters below. We've got God's heavenly throne established on the waters. We've got the connection between the heavenly temple and the earthly temple. We've got the pillars of the earth. We've got the netherworld, Sheol, dangling below here. We've got Leviathan swirling around in the, in the deep. We've got the sun, moon, and stars inside a solid sky. Uh, this is all basically the language of biblical text. Now, of course, it's very different from the Egyptians because there's not gods all through it. But it still addresses who's in charge, the one God up there at the top. But Israel's God is outside, not inside. So that was a difference in how they viewed God and how they viewed the divine realm. But notice that otherwise, this is very much like the Egyptian picture. They've still got waters above, waters below, solid sky, air, earth, sun, moon, and stars in, in these kinds of positions, very much like the Egyptian. In fact, the Egyptians would look at this picture and know exactly what it was showing. The Israelites would look at the Egyptian picture and know exactly what it was showing. Either of them, looking at our picture, blue earth, would have any idea what we're talking about. In that way, there's a lot more similarity between the Egyptians and the Israelites than there is between either one of them and us. We're the foreigners. We're the outsiders here. Now, if God is going to communicate to Israel about their world, whose cosmic geography is he going to use? Do we think that he would use our blue earth cosmic geography? 
that wouldn't really communicate very well to that audience. They wouldn't understand a bit of it. God would have to do an awful lot of explaining. And of course, you've read enough of Scripture to know that that information is not there in the pages of Scripture. He doesn't give them our cosmic geography. He uses their cosmic geography. He doesn't use a Reformation cosmic geography or a medieval one or a Hellenistic one. He uses theirs because he is an effective communicator. He is communicating to a particular audience in a particular time, language, and culture. He uses their cosmic geography with no apologies, no disclaimers. He just uses it. Talks about the pillars of the earth. Talks about the waters above. He uses theirs. Isn't that a problem, we might say? No. Because God is not revealing cosmic geography. God's not affirming a cosmic geography. All people of all times, hear me, says the Lord. There are indeed pillars of the earth. Believe it. God is not revealing cosmic geography. He is using their cosmic geography as a framework for communication. Because you have to use something. And he uses theirs. We wouldn't expect him to use any other because how would we say what the right cosmic geography is? Not the Hellenistic one, not the medieval one, not the Reformation one, and not ours. Our cosmic geography changes. You say, wait, wait, wait. Now, now it's set. We know. But wait a minute. It was just 100 years ago that we thought steady state was the way to think about the universe, and now Big Bang cosmology is all the rage. And then who knows, maybe that'll change. And let's talk about Pluto, shall we? <laughs> yeah. Our cosmic geography is changing. I was at a conference about two months ago, and there was an astronomer from UCLA there giving a presentation. And uh, so he's talking about Pluto. He said, You want to know why Pluto isn't a planet anymore? And of course, we were dying of curiosity. He said, Please, do tell. He said, Well, he said, With all the advanced technology and Hubble and all of these things, We've found that there are some 300 plus more bodies very much like Pluto right out there in the vicinity of Pluto. That means you either make all of those planets or you take Pluto away. And we just couldn't do it to the school kids. Death alone, planets names, and that 370 would be really, yeah. So Pluto's out. Anyway, it doesn't matter. The fact is, cosmic geography is, is always in flux. So, the idea isn't that God is going to reveal the right cosmic geography for all the ages. He has to use someone's to communicate, and he's communicating to that audience in that culture, and he's going to use theirs. He does use theirs. And we don't take that cosmic geography, therefore, as God's authoritative revelation of a world picture. We understand that it's just, you need something to communicate. And God uses that. The difference between a framework for communication and that which the text is affirming. We've always said the Bible is inerrant in all that it affirms. That's how we describe our doctrine. 
Now, besides that, we also have to realize that we need to see the text the way that the ancient audience saw the text. That that communication between the author and the audience is most important, has authority. That's what we have to get to. We have to read the text as they were. We can't give words meanings that the ancient author and audience would not have had. Because then that sets up, uh, us up as an alternate authority. Forget what the author meant by it. Here's what it means. Oh, thank you. God's gift to all of us, for you. And we can't do that. Now, it's interesting because sometimes you hear that in this conversation. You might hear someone say, uh, well, it, the Bible says God spread out the heavens. See? That's Big Bang in the expanding universe. And see, my question is, is that what the ancient author intended? Is that what the ancient audience understood? If not, that has no authority, and I'm not reading the text the way I need to. If we start reading science into the text, we're putting meaning there that was not there in that authoritative transaction between the author and the audience. We can't do that. We might say, but it's true. I mean, it's true. Well, you might think that the Big Bang is true and the expanding universe is true, but we're not talking about truth just in any way we see it. We're talking about authority. Authority is true, but there are things that are true that are not coming with authority. And when we're reading text, we have to be concerned about authority. So we have to see the text the way the Israelites saw the text. Okay, let's move on and talk a little bit about Bible and science, a few issues. Again, I'm not a scientist, but there's a couple things as a Bible person that I want us to recognize as we put these pieces together. The first thing to recognize is that often when we're talking about Bible and science, we're trying to negotiate between what's natural and what's supernatural. What did God do and what's kind of covered by natural laws and natural cause and effect? Okay, well, what we have to recognize is that we there, in doing so, we set up categories that did not exist in the ancient world. There is no natural in the ancient world. They don't think about natural laws. They don't think about natural cause and effect. They have no such category. God is doing everything. They say, well, what about, you know, kind of like miracles? Miracles are things that are supernatural instead of natural. Does the Bible call them miracles? calls them signs and wonders. Signs and wonders are the acts by which God shows his power, the acts by which God delivers his people, the acts by which God shows his plan and works it out. And it doesn't matter whether we can explain them by our natural laws or not, they are signs and wonders by which God reveals himself. We might talk about God's intervention. That is not a concept that they would even understand. You can only intervene if you're outside. You can only intervene in something you are not doing. 
God is doing everything. So he can't intervene. I couldn't intervene in this lecture. I'm giving it. Do you see how even our basic terms for discussing already put us at a distance from the ancient world? And if we're going to be trying to, trying to assess the text in terms of natural and supernatural, we're bringing categories that, that are foreign to the text. When the text says God is doing something, it's not making a statement that this is somehow supernatural instead of natural. Because God does everything. Okay, so how's it work? Sometimes we think that we're slicing up a pot. My daughter's a pastry chef. I like to get the whole family involved. My son draws the pictures. My daughter does some baking for some help. And you know, get, get the whole family involved. You'll see other parts and other parts of the family do. Now, in this one, um, I really wanted her to use whipped cream to do the words, but she said, no, there are limits. There are limits. <laughs> anyway, uh, this is how we often think. We think that with our categories, of course, remember, again, these are foreign to the biblical text. But with our categories, we think, well, if science can, can describe and explain something using natural laws and natural cause and effect, well, that's not God. What a crazy thing to think. But, that, you know, again, we're, we're using our categories. So that's not God. And so the more things that get attributed to natural cause and effect, of course, the problem is the smaller God gets. This is called the God of the gaps kind of model, and it's flawed. It's flawed because of that very thing. That it assumes that God is not doing those things which we, which we call natural, and it assumes that once we explain something, it's taken away from God, and the picture of God shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. And it's people who hold this kind of view that are behind this idea that there's a warfare between science and the Bible. They're all fighting for the extra pieces of pie. Now, I, I admit, we did that when we ate this pie. No, okay. But so, that's, that's, see, that promotes a warfare. Because if science gets it, God doesn't. Well, there's a problem here. The problem is, you've just got the wrong dessert. So, I say to my daughter, let's try again. Yeah, that's, you know, ulterior motives. But let's try again. Okay? Let's try, okay. Let's do a cake. Now, here we've got a layer cake, and we might think, again, in our terms, of the natural being the lower level. I'm not going to call it the other uh -uh. <laughs> Okay? But we think of the natural being that lower level, and this is where science can explore and investigate and find things out and do all of their work, okay, without any hindrance, etc. And no matter what they find, it doesn't take away from the top layer. That's God's work. And whatever science is finding out, that's stuff God is doing. And so, in that sense, science is not diminishing God. Science is not competing with God. Science cannot really explore the top layer. That's arguable, by the way. Some people think that science can, maybe will, eventually, might, uh, used to, all kinds of things. But we won't get into that. Basically, a science is defined today. It's only working in the bottom layer. Can't tell you whether God's there or not. Can't tell you whether God did it or not. Okay? But God is over all of it, everything that science can define or describe. Now, in this kind of model, there's no warfare. Okay? They're not competing. 
their claims come in different areas. Now again, this could get tricky too, and it become a, could become a long discussion. I'm not dealing with Kant here. This is not those kinds of things. My buddy Tim is back there. I don't want to get into philosophy. No, he's the man. Anyway, but, um, but at any rate, that's, that's not what I'm talking about here, the Kantian divide or anything of that sort. It's just a matter that science has its place, and that does not distract from what God is doing. Okay, so when we think about origins, or really anything that deals with science, uh, we have to consider these issues. Now, a couple principles, then, as we think about science and the Bible. The first one I propose is that there is no new scientific revelation in the Bible. Now, again, don't take this further than what I intend. I'm not suggesting that there's no historical occurrence that shows um, uh, things happening that go beyond science. I'm talking about the things that normally, naturally, regularly happen in what we call the natural world. How the world operates, how it functions, its mechanisms and its processes, the regularity. And there is no new information given to them in any of what we call the hard sciences. Yes, it's true that sometimes God does things that show that science isn't everything. That's a different thing entirely. So I'm talking about scientific revelation of things in the hard sciences. To say that another way, everything in the Bible that has to do with those hard sciences is in terms that anyone in the ancient world would have understood. It's not new information. Israel would have already thought that way. Assyrians and Hittites would have thought that way. He's not giving them new ways to think about the natural world. God is giving them new ways to think about himself, new ways to think about themselves, new ways to think about the relationship in God's plan, ways to think about how many gods there are. Well, all of that, God's giving them new information, but that's not science. There's no new scientific revelation. I have the example of the heart up there. It's a, it's a good example, I think. Uh, in the ancient world, they had no concept of the physiology of the brain. They really didn't know what it was. Uh, when they talked about the true person, the real you, your emotional, psychological, intellectual self, they didn't connect it to the brain. They connected it to the various entrails. The heart, the kidney, the liver, the intestines, the stomach. They believed that people thought with those things. Yeah, sometimes I do think with my stomach. <laughs> but that's not physiology. Okay? So they connected all the things that we associate with the physiology of the brain, they connected that down here. Uh, look at the Egyptians, for instance. When they're mummifying, they have these special canopic jars, and they take the, the most important organs, and they preserve them, natron, and, and carefully wrap them up, because that's the real person that they want to, to continue to exist in the next life. What do they do with the brain? Some of you know this. Poke up the nose, pull it out, throw it away. They have no idea of its physiology and no, no concept of its significance. So, they had a very strange sense of physiology in the ancient world. It is not ours, and dare I say, it's not right. Does God give them a new one? No, he doesn't. There's not even a biblical Hebrew word for brain. When the Bible talks about mind, some, in some of your passages you have that, 
That, it's a word for intestines. Okay? Your translator is helping you. Okay, so they don't have an updated, upgraded physiology. God does not give them one. And in fact, God communicates to them given the physiology that they have. Now that's really intriguing. Because God will talk even about his own heart. And he's not talking about a blood pump. He'll talk about them thinking with their hearts and believing with their hearts. And he's not trying to reveal to them the true physiology for the ages. He's rather trying to communicate to them that no matter what you think with, think godly thoughts. What they think is important, not what they think with. God uses their own ways of understanding to communicate with them. <coughs> think about the importance of that. We've said before that the Bible is not a scientific textbook, as its intention is not to teach science. But this goes far beyond that. This says God has not revealed any new science in the Bible. That should become an important point when we ask the question, what scientific claims is the Bible making? And its intention is not to teach science. And it has no new scientific revelation. What claims could it be making? <clears throat> Second point, observation of natural cause and effect does not remove God from the picture. Psalm 139.13, the psalmist says, you knit me together in my mother's womb. We don't somehow think that that should give us cause to object to scientists involved in studying embryology. Those godless atheists trying to get around what the Bible says about how... No, no, we don't do that. Good thing. We don't pick at their offices. We're quite willing to understand that everything an embryologist learns about child growth in the womb is helping us understand how God knits us together in our mother's womb. To understand the natural processes does not remove God from the picture. We're back to our cake model instead of our pie model. Why don't we do the same thing with origins? Why can't we think that everything scientists discover about origins is telling us more about how God creates? Well, it's because we think that there are other claims being made. And we'll get to those. So we must consider carefully what scientific claims the Bible might be making. In light of what we've learned here, what scientific claims might they be making? Now, let's start moving toward my proposed thesis. The first part deals with text analysis. Of course, that's, that's what I do. Too often, when people get trying to understand science and the Bible together, they are accused either of making up their own science or diminishing, reducing, tap dancing around what the text really says. Well, I'm not going to make up any science. I, I'm not a science person. 
And I'm going to show you that we are not going to tap dance around the text. We are going to probe very deeply into the text, a very close reading of the text. So text analysis. If you have your Bibles, you might want to open up to Genesis chapter 1. We'll be spending a good deal of time there. And I want to take a look at day 1, but we're going to start at the end of it, verse 5. In verse 5, it says that God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. Now, you've probably read that verse dozens of times, maybe hundreds of times. But it's probable, it's likely that you have never asked the question, why didn't God call the light light? What's going on? Why does he call the light day? They're not the same thing. What kind of statement is the Bible making? Now this is the first of probably a dozen different times during this presentation that we're going to land on a question that typically has not been asked of the text. And the problem in textual analysis is that we often cannot get good answers because we have not asked good questions. We ask the questions that are dearest to us, that are the things we really, really want to know, that have to do with our modern agendas and our current concerns. You see, that's not the way we can go about it. It's not the way we should go about it. We should go about it by trying to figure out what questions do we need to ask to understand what is on the author's mind, what is communicated about. This is a basic logic question. He calls the light day. What's going on? Well, this one's easy enough to resolve. Once we have asked the question, the answer is not hard to come by. That is, if you kind of back up and say, okay, well, we've got day. So how does day relate to light? Well, day is a period of light. So God called a period of light day. That was easy. It's not always hard to come by the answers if you've once decided to ask the question. So God called the period of light day, the period of darkness he called night. And so there was evening, which is a transition from the period of light to the period of darkness. And there was morning, which is a transition from the period of darkness to the period of light. And we have day one. So, let's move backwards. Verse 4. God separated the light from the darkness. Hold it, hold it, hold it. You can't do that. How can you separate them? They can't be together. This is not good physics. Exactly right on that. Because the Israelites are not talking physics. See how easy we can slip into it. So, well, what does it mean to separate the light from the darkness? I mean, it's a nonsensical statement in our modern ways of thinking. So, we're not supposed to be thinking in our modern ways of thinking. But as it turns out, this likewise, um, we're already prepared for with the answer we landed on in verse 5. Verse 4, God separated the period of light from the period of darkness. Okay, so he distinguished alternating periods of light and darkness. The periods of light he called day, periods of darkness he called night. That works. Boy, this text analysis stuff is easy. 
Yeah, can ask a question. Sometimes it is. Okay, everybody with me? Following me? Is that making sense? You shake your heads yes, I really got you. Right where I want you. <laughs> Back to verse 3. God said, let there be, wait, wait, think. God said, let there be, remember what we did in verse 4, remember what we did in verse 5, to be consistent, God said, let there be a period of light. And God distinguished between a period of light and a period of darkness, and a period of light he named day, a period of darkness he named night. So, what did God create on day one? On day one, God created the basis of time, this first step to bringing order to the cosmos. Now, lots of times when I talk about this material, somebody will eventually ask, how did you come to all of this? It was precisely that sequence that we just went through that drove me to the position that I present throughout this whole thing. I was in a class. I was lecturing. It was a Hebrew exegesis class. We were doing Genesis 1. I went through exactly what I just went through with you. You know, call it day, period of light, you know, separated period, light and darkness. So this is, uh, let there be a period of light. And that's kind of like time. And I'd gotten that far before in other lectures and said those same things. But in this one class period, I went the very next step and said, that means that on day one, God is not creating an object. He is not creating something material. He is creating a function connected to work. And to say it finally that blatantly, that explicitly, Suddenly, just all the fireworks went off. And I said, I have been reading this text with the wrong perspective. Now, I hesitate to call it wrong, because I don't want to say that people read it that way or wrong. But in my own mind, say, I was, I was assuming that the focus was material. But here we have day one, which is not something material. And even if we thought that light could be seen as material, particle theory, wave theory, <laughs> certainly the Israelites did not see it as something material. So they don't think of this as communicating a material act of God's. And it led me to say, as it leads me to say so often now, what kind of creation account is this? And I hope you see that that's exactly the right question we have to ask. We might have started with assumptions, thinking that we knew what kind of creation account that it was. But already, this information has dashed our expectations and suggested we might have to follow, or at least consider, Another line of reasoning, if we're going to stick with what the text is doing, with how the author and audience understood it. 
Bernie asks, what kind of creation account is this? We need to deal with the Hebrew word bara, the verb create. Now, it has about 50 occurrences. That's important because uh, while Moses gave us a number of books, a dictionary is not among them. And as a result, we have to figure out the meanings of these words. Now, we figure out the meanings of words by seeing how they're used in a contemporary context. That's always true. That's how linguists learn languages that have never been written. That's how we understand the words that we use in our own culture, by how they're used. My family growing up, we probably had a list of, oh, 40, 50 different words that we had given our own personalized family meaning to. Maybe you've had the same experience in your families. And we could use them with each other because we understood. You couldn't use them outside because it wouldn't make sense to anybody. Uh, words are used because there's a sort of agreement between the people communicating that those words will have that common basic meaning. And they can use them that way. Words change meaning. You know that because they change more rapidly than, than ever. Google used to be a technical mathematical term. Now it's a verb. Words change meaning. And we just kind of ride the waves with it, make the adjustments as best as we can. So when we want to understand an ancient word, we have to understand its usage. And of course, that's part of what, what people studying Hebrew do. But you can even do this some in your, with just English, just looking in a biblical concordance. You can look up these occurrences and take a look at the context. So to some extent, you can do it some, even without specialized knowledge. Barra's got about 50 occurrences. That's enough. It's be nice to have more, but we've got that. We're happy with that. To understand a verb, you're going to understand the nature of a verbal activity by evaluating its subjects and its objects. And that's going to tell you what kind of activity is involved. Okay, now, bara, create, in broad general terms, has to do with transitioning from non-existence to existence. It means that in English too. Existence comes from non-existence. There's some kind of activity that transitions. Now, having said that, we also realize that the verb create in English can have any variety of different activities connected to it. There are probably dozens of possibilities. Yet, we understand the usage enough that we make adjustments by context. So, for example, if I talked about creating a committee, you would know what I meant. It's not like the people didn't exist and then poof, although those of us on committees wish it were that way. You just got to create people that would be on committees instead of being, you know. Okay, so, but we know what we mean by create a committee. To create a curriculum, we know what that entails. It's an organizing kind of process, to create a recipe, to create a masterpiece, to create habit. We use create in all sorts of ways, but we make the adjustments fine, because we're, we're all speakers of this language, and we know it can be used that way. Now, of course, Hebrew is not going to be the same necessarily, but we have to be on the lookout. But depending what the object is, I just gave you a whole series of objects, curriculum, committee, okay? Depending what the object is, 
that's going to tell us what the activity is like. And if you're talking about transitioning from non-existence to existence, it's very necessary to see what the beginning point is. What did the non-existence look like? As on when I said committee, the non-existence was not those people were not existent. Okay, it's rather they didn't have those tasks. They didn't have that role or function. Okay? That's an important example. So, what about Bharat? What are its, what's its subject? What's its object? What does the before situation look like? And what does the result look like? That's how we figure out what the word means, what kind of activity it has. Well, we find out that it only takes God as subject or actor, so it's a divine activity. Great, that's helpful, but it really doesn't tell us what kind of activity. God could theoretically create lots of different things in lots of different ways. So we need the objects. Well, it turns out it takes a wide variety of direct objects, and we can take a look at a partial list. This is not comprehensive. But it gives you a good selection. Uh, again, in the book, I have a, a full list of all of them, and talk about those. What does it mean for God to create the Ammonites or the Edomites? <clears throat> what kind of creative activity is involved in God creating Jerusalem? What does it mean when God creates wind or fire or cloud? Calamity? Darkness? We can see that in so many of these, we're not dealing with God manufacturing an object, a thing. This is a whole range of organization and order and function. Created me a pure heart, O oh God. That's the same verb. Even when he talks about people, he might say, well, it means people as, as material beings. He does it. Says God created them and he created them male and female. Is it really about their functions or about the material or both? Now what we find when we take a look at this verb and all of its usage, we discover that a, a large majority of its cases are explicitly not material. What that tells us is that there is nothing inherent in this verb that suggests materiality. After all, God created time on day one, and that's not material. So, when we make the statement that God created the heavens and the earth, we can't just assume that that means something material. So, let's take a look at the starting point. The starting point is actually not in verse 1, but in verse 2. Verse 1, most modern evangelical interpreters agree. Verse 1 is a literary introduction to the chapter. That is, it is not a separate, independent act of creation. It's rather telling you what the chapter is going to be about. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. Let me tell you how he did it. And God creating heaven and earth is in those seven days, not something preceding the seven days. 
This chapter sees all of the creative activity inside the seven days. So chapter one, verse one, is a literary introduction. That means the story starts in verse two. So where does it start? Again, if we're going to understand bara, this creative activity, we need to know what the starting point looked like. So, verse 2. Now the earth, hold it. What do you mean, the earth? What's that? Where'd that come from? What's that doing here? Okay, move on. The earth was formed, hold it. You mean it was lacking shape? But that would mean it was there. What would it mean that it was lacking shape? Move on. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. The deep? Where'd that come from? What's going on here? Again, what kind of creation story is this? And all the major characters are kind of on stage already at the beginning. We might well ask what kind of creation story it is. We note then that the starting point is not lacking matter. Earth, sea, deep. It's not lacking matter. But rather it's lacking order. Now, if we've read enough of the ancient Near East, as I have done, so I can tell you that this is the case, darkness and sea are elements of non-order in the ancient world. All the creation accounts start with darkness and sea. Those are the elements of non-order. Now we start looking at the words carefully. This formless entity, some of you might know the Hebrew terms, tohu bavohu. Just so much fun to say. Tohu bavohu. Tohu is the one, bohu is the other. Uh, bohu we don't know much about because it only occurs three times and always with tohu and always referring to this. Tohu we have some 20 times and so we can find out a lot more about it. And what we find out is that tohu refers to something lacking worth or purpose. A place where nothing is done. So actually formless is not, not going in the right direction here. Because that talks as if tohu has to do with materiality. And it doesn't. It has to do with order and function. So this text says the earth was tohu. That means it did not yet have a function. Again, the story is starting lacking order, not lacking matter. An Egyptian parallel? They actually talk about the non-existent as references to that which has not yet been differentiated and assigned a function. The Egyptians will talk about the desert as non-existent. They'll talk about the cosmic oceans as non-existent. And you would say, they must have a different idea of existence than we do. And you'd be exactly right. And isn't that important? After all, to create means to bring something from non-existence to existence, and you have a different idea of what
constitutes existence, that makes creating a different kind of activity. In an Egyptian way of thinking, it doesn't exist, meaning it doesn't have a function. It may be material, but it doesn't have a function. Creation takes place, giving it a function. And now it exists. They have brought it into existence by giving it a function. And we can find the same kinds of ideas in the Bible. See, we always thought we knew what existence was. We kind of thought we had that nailed down. But we're bringing our outsider ideas into an insider communication where they have a very different way of thinking. And it's not clear to us at all because the only way we know to think is the things we already know. And so it's natural for us to bring our own categories and criteria into the text. And it's studying the ancient world and studying the biblical text very closely that helps us start to identify these places where, oh, they didn't think the same way we do. Where's the authority? It's in the way that they think. Now, I think this is a good time to take a break. Um, we're going to go to the next step of my proposed thesis. Uh, and uh, But let's take a break, get stretched, and find restrooms. And there's some water back there. Water, coffee, sustenance. And uh, also, don't forget the DVD from the books off to the left there.